Before you go, we want to let you know about a special offer for one of our most popular self-paced online courses. Led by Thomas, The Art of Attunement includes seven modules of recorded teachings and guided meditations, plus a special bonus package of attunement practices to help heal the illusion of separation. This program can benefit healers, therapists, and anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the relational dynamics that connect us and an increased capacity for presence. Enroll by March 21st and get 50% off the regular price for the course. To learn more, visit artofattunementcourse.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is the point of relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. For our next interview, we're going to be talking with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk who is a psychiatrist, author, educator, and president of the Trauma Research Foundation. Dr. Vanderkolk has spent his career studying how children and adults adapt to traumatic experiences and has translated emerging findings from his neuroscience and attachment research to develop and study a range of potentially effective treatments for traumatic stress in children and adults. Dr. Vanderkolk has contributed significantly to the field of trauma treatment in 1984, he set up one of the first clinical research centers in the U.S. dedicated to the study and treatment of traumatic stress in civilian populations. This center has trained numerous researchers and clinicians specializing in the study and treatment of traumatic stress, and has been continually funded to research impacts and interventions. He did the first studies on effects of SSRIs on PTSD was a member of the first neuroimaging team to investigate how trauma changes brain processes and did the first research linking BPD and deliberate self-injury to trauma and neglect in early childhood. In addition to his work as a clinician, Dr. Van de Kolk is a prolific researcher. He has studied the efficacy of using yoga for the treatment of PTSD, the underlying mechanisms of eye movement desensitization and reprocessing EMDR, and the use of neurofeedback in PTSD. He has written books and published over 150 articles on trauma. His book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Treatment of Trauma, has been translated into over 20 languages. Hello, and welcome back to this uh, summit. I have the honor to sit here today with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, so very warm welcome to you. I'm so happy that you generously agreed to be part of our summit. So very welcome. Pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 
I would love um, to dive right in with you. And so the, the question that we ask basically every speaker is why, why do you think, and you know, you're an expert, you dedicated your whole life uh, basically to exploring trauma, most probably already from very early on. So why do you, why do you think or know that trauma and maybe also trauma and collective trauma are important uh, topics nowadays for us and that to be trauma-informed to a certain degree is something important for us. I think trauma has always been central to our lives. What's intriguing to me is how trauma, the discussion of trauma has wasn't central before. Uh, and I was on some other webcast and somebody said, Dr. Van der Kolk, why do you think there's so much more trauma today than there was before? And I said, do you know anything about history? Uh, <laughs> actually, there is less trauma today than before. And it is when people start feeling somewhat safe that they start being able to actually talk about it, uh, that safety is not an ordinary condition, that people have always lived in terror and fear and disasters. What's also interesting for me is that the countries that um, are some of the safest, most civilized countries in the world are the countries that have most work, done most work on trauma. People mm -hmm. like, places like Norway, where nobody kills anybody ever, or Australia or Holland are places where people really know about trauma because it's so extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, in the American South or in South Africa or Middle East, uh, except the exception of Israel, uh, people don't talk about trauma because it is so uh, part of the fabric of life. Uh, so, but for me, is it is amazing that as I was growing up professionally as a psychiatrist, that nobody talked about child abuse and nobody talked about rape and nobody talked about family violence. It was a forbid. It was it's an unseen topic. Now, in the history of psychoanalysis, people never talked about it. And uh, how did people get to be so blind? Mainly because it was so ubiquitous. You know, I think there was too much of it. And now that we actually have, some people actually have good lives that we can say, huh, interesting. How do people get to be so crazy? Uh, that we actually start being able to look at it. So mm. the study of trauma comes out of complex social political factors. But it certainly did not start with uh, understanding children and women, which, of course, are the main trauma populations. But it came out of studying soldiers, mm. uh, which is another curious thing. You know, everybody still talks about soldiers as the big trauma population. But, of course, that's not true. The big trauma population is um, abused children, uh, women in domestic violence situations, and uh, those people don't get a lot of attention. And the fact that right now children are separated from their parents on the southern border of the United States uh, and horribly traumatized, it's just a stunning thing to happen that this is possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree totally. I agree totally. And that, that's maybe something maybe we can come back to like yeah. what what allows that in the first place but um i you said something that i i want to underline that the, the safety when we feel safe yeah. i know one of the core elements of your work is relational safety and can yeah. you maybe explain a little bit more why why 
relational safety is such an important issue, not only in the trauma healing, but for forming healthy societies, basically. Well, you know, we are primates. You know, I learned from monkeys in the zoo. You know, like, uh, you know, we are monkeys, and our brain are monkey brains, and we live with other people. We have brains in order to do what you and I are doing, talking to each other, comparing notes, uh, explaining things to each other. And that gives us pleasure and meaning. You know, uh, if you or I go to spend a month by ourselves not talking to anybody, we can do it and we'll be sort of heroic if we do it. But that's not our nature. Our nature is to yak and to hang out with people and to <laughs> do things together. And uh, that's what we have brains for. And, you know, when you see little kids, I happen to have some tiny babies in my life these days, uh, they are by themselves and they just need need to be taken care of but they as you see a kid develop it becomes more of a, a member of a troop and learns how to talk and interact and adjust itself but we are troop people you know mm-hmm. and one of the things that trauma does is it separates you from the group and it becomes a god forsaken experience and then the psalms are good about it but i mean to respond to trauma is I'm all by myself mm-hmm. and the healing of trauma is indeed about feeling you're a member of a group mm-hmm. uh, maybe a 12 step program or a survivor's program or a terrorist gang but some sort of way in which you can reconnect with other people where you feel like I'm a part of something larger than myself mm-hmm. but the trauma experience is the opposite of that is mm-hmm. that I'm all by myself yeah mm-hmm. So would you say then that the the large degree of separation that many people experience in our societies is already an underlying trauma symptom that we are grappling with and that maybe jeopardizes a lot of whatever family, institutional, and global collaboration? So when we looked at it, it's actually an underlying trauma symptom that we are often dealing with consciously or unconsciously? But, you know, I'm not a sociologist, and what I'm always impressed with is how little I know about uh, other people. So I don't know how lonely other people are. I don't know how much time people spend. For example, a very simple question, I don't know. I don't know how many people wake up and turn on the television in the morning. Mm -hmm. And for me, the idea that you turn on television in the morning and have your face blared by alien people is inconceivable mm-hmm. but i think a lot of people turn on the tv and drown out their sense of self and that gives them their virtual connection with the world mm-hmm. but boy these virtual connections are very dangerous i think mm-hmm. if you don't own it you don't live it it doesn't become part of your your body yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so when you um in our pre-conversation we we talked already a little about this that um you know, one reason for me to set up this summit was my experience with the work with the Second World War, the Holocaust, yeah. and its ripple effects mm-hmm. into the world. And um, and you're coming from Holland, uh, so it's kind of you were close in the in the center of the the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit how that affected you and and how you look at called the collective dimension of the right. trauma well indeed you know really as far as as long as uh, like it started off like this i think i may have mentioned in my book my father was in a in a german camp 
And I was actually born when my father came home. And my father was helped to escape by a, a guard, actually, who became friendly with. My father came home and he called me Barnabas, son of, con of consolation. Um, and my father was in the camp because he was very sort of active anti-Nazi. Um, and then my father often has behaved like a Nazi as, when I was growing up. And as a three-year-old, I probably started to say to my dad, Dad, you're behaving like a Nazi. And at the same time, you were, you were almost killed for being a Nazi. How is that possible? <laughs> so these were the questions that really very early on started to preoccupy me, is that people say one thing and then they do another thing. And so uh, very early on, you know, as a Dutch kid, you go up with German music, with Beethoven and Bach and all those things. And you go like and, and Goethe, and you go like, how can the people who created this most gorgeous music in the world, the most gorgeous literature, turn around and become beasts? And, and do these horrendous things to other people and lose all their sense of humanity. Like, from very early on, that's just like, how do people do this? How, how does this happen? And then what I just talked with you about also is that, so in Holland, which was a very small and rather insignificant country for a long time, um, I grew up with people in Holland always popping themselves up with, Look what the, what the Germans did to us, and we were this heroic people who who fought against the Germans. And it's largely a myth that the Dutch weren't heroic; they were just trying to survive. But they really pumped themselves up in their victimhood. Um, and then one of my closest friends growing up was the son of an SS general, uh, and they never talked about the war, and you couldn't talk about the war. And then when finally. I was very intrigued with how the Germans who lived a few miles away from where I grew up never talk about what happened to them, mm -hmm. and that the Dutch always talk about what happened to them. So they got the Dutch mm -hmm. identity of victims, which is a tricky identity to have. Mm -hmm. And that the Germans who didn't talk about the war was also intriguing because in psychiatry we always say, if you don't talk about your trauma, you're bound to repeat it. Mm -hmm. But the Germans didn't talk about their trauma. Mm -hmm. And the Germans became an extraordinarily humane and thoughtful society. So what we say about these things may not necessarily be true. Mm -hmm. And the Germans already had sort of really atoned for many things, I think, and worked very hard to build Volkswagens and Mercedes-Benzes and get enough wealth to really become civilized again before they started to talk about what happened, which mm -hmm. I thought was intriguing. That they didn't get stuck on look what we did and look what is done to us, but they completely ignored it. And only after they became one of the wealthiest countries in the world again were they able to begin to reflect upon themselves. And then the other thing that really intrigued me is that because I had these German friends and because we were bombed as kids, I knew the Germans were also bombed as kids, and the Germans never talked about what happened to them. They talked about what happened to the poor Jews. They didn't quite talk about, hey, look what we did to you, but they got some sort of sense of affiliation and something. Uh, but they never talked about how hundreds of thousands of German women got raped and that probably millions of people died in firestorms and millions of people died on the battlefield. That, that issue completely disappeared mm -hmm. in, in Germany. It was very 
very intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I mean, so much in my experience in this work, like also the, the phase of silence and, and also yeah. tremendous traumatization, yeah. and also that it hasn't been talked about what really has been inflicted. So all the things yeah. that you mentioned, they were also deeply points in, in the work that I experienced this too. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because you, you said something that I want to come back to, because it's very interesting. You, you, you grew up as a boy asking yourself this question. So how on the one side, Beethoven and, and all the philosophers and like, yeah. like high level culture, so yeah. to speak. And on the other side, to be able to do some of the most gruesome things uh, you can do. So it, throughout your life and also throughout your life with working most probably thousands of people, um, how did you walk this question up to today? What, what's your take on it today? Um, <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. I, I, I'm still, I continue to be astounded blind people we are. You know, like, what's happening in, in America right now at the border. Mm-hmm. It's just unspeakable. Mm-hmm. That we, we know what happens to kids who get separated from their parents. We know that these kids will become severely traumatized. And we know that these kids probably are grow, going to grow up to do to other people what has been done to them. Duh. You know, like, uh, uh, the whole issue by, in politics about how you can uh, not providing education to poor people, if uh, to leave people living in horrendous circumstances. We know what the effects of that are. And somehow we keep ignoring all these obvious data. You know, uh, there's a thing in America where, you know, America's school children take more and more tests because they find that kids in Finland and in Korea score so much better than American kids. And uh, what they don't know is that in Finland and Korea, kids actually sing and they play and they have recesses and they do what kids are supposed to do. And our response in America is to do less and less play, to do less and less singing, to do less and less stuff. And to tell these kids who are all frozen because they watch too much television and see too much violence at home, to have them sit still and to take tests, to compete with kids who actually don't have homework, but who are naturally curious because they feel safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, you don't see that. Powerful. Because they feel safe. Like, that's a, a very powerful sentence. I mean, yeah. it sounds so simple, but it's actually so powerful what you said now. But it's so weird that, like, you know, anybody who hangs out with kids, when kids feel safe, they play and they explore and they do stuff with each other. And uh, you don't have to worry, is my kid going to learn something? Because we are naturally curious human beings. Most people enjoy learning stuff. You don't have to. I never needed to be like, do your homework. I was a curious kid. Like, no. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I totally am with you here. Um, and... Um, so, I mean, this brings us to another question that I know that you are very passionate about, and I'm too. It's like the, the, the question of embodiment, because I think mm-hmm. what you said right now, to feel safe as a child, 
creates a natural synchronization and kind of awareness of our body and of our like physical nature and and maybe trauma does the opposite so and and you you talk about a big degree of disembodiment in our yeah. culture maybe yeah. tell us a little bit what's what's your research yeah. what's your experience well, something that unlike some of the other big questions i really understand on a deep level now and that is that our sense of aliveness is is based on our body sensations and that uh, to what degree you get uh, turned on like I'm, my window that you can't see is looking out over mountains in the valley out here and then and they see that and it's almost full here and i get it's beautiful and and i feel tingling all over my body looking mm -hmm. at that beautiful thing see in the window um when you're traumatized your sensations also run the world and that's surprising to me again how that's not front and center when people talk about trauma is that the, the issue being traumatized means that you have heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations in your body and the first person who i know who really talked about it aside from shakespeare uh, is charles darwin who wrote a book about that huh? um, and you feel it in your body and uh, your emotions are sensory uh, experiences and if you feel terrible and most of us have felt terrible in our lives so we know that is you feel it in your chest and you feel it in your abdomen and it's unbearable huh? so as an adult if we have heartbreaking experience we tend to quickly solve it by taking a drug uh, taking your project taking your alcohol doing something to make those feelings go away which is quite troublesome actually uh, but as a kid uh, if you have continuous heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations, you learn to shut down your own body and to ignore and to push away those feelings that are very much in the insula and the periectal gray. We really understand these circuits in the brain quite well these days. And when you shut that down, you stop feeling. And when you stop feeling, you start feeling dead. Mm -hmm. And when you start feeling dead, your life has no longer any meaning. And you have no self-compassion and you certainly have no compassion for other people and I, either and you feel nothing and then if you feel nothing then maybe um playing violent computer games may give you a little bit of a sense of pleasure or hating people who look different from the way you do gives you a sense of aliveness because you cannot get it from um growing flowers in your garden or playing your piano because that's too too mild essential stimulus and you know to go back again to what happened in germany and japan uh, i don't know what happened in cambodia and i don't know what's happening in india right now uh, but you know germany was a very traumatized country in the between the two world wars and uh, people were scared to death and they just they were desperate and they shut things down and they shut things down and they, you they listen to this nut adolf hitler you you look at this video it's like the guy is crazy not unlike some of the politicians today actually like how can anybody like a person like this but but these angry hateful people make you feel alive mm. and make you help you to no longer feel that internal sense of helplessness and deadness inside. Mm -hmm. mm. And so uh, to overcome trauma, you need to wake up your body again. 
Mm-hmm. They can really take pleasure in the small things of life. Mm-hmm. And that's very much what we do in our workshops, is to really help people to just notice your feelings in your body. A lot of people find that very scary, actually. Mm-hmm. One of the hallmarks of traumatized people is that they, the television is always blaring, there's always things sitting in the ear, and they put things in because they feel so dead inside, and unless they put a lot of stuff into their sensory system, they shut down and feel like nobody. Yeah, right. And the whole world, nobody and somebody, is fascinating. How did English evolve that way, that somebody is different from somebody? Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. you are somebody, you have a body, you are a person with a body, and if you're a person with a body, you are somebody. And if your person doesn't have a body, you are nobody. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so you, you started already sharing a little bit how to heal it, because I think that's an interesting, uh, like, how do we, what's the path if I, if I don't feel myself or if I shut down bigger parts of myself? What chances do I have? What, what can I do as, a, as an interested person to say, yes, I recognize that in me. So that's one thing that I first need to recognize it in me. But let's say that happened already. So what can I do? What, what are you doing in your workshops? How do you support people coming more back in tune or in touch with themselves? Well, uh, let me tell you a little bit about my own trajectory here. Um, so, so I was part of the generation where a large number of kids were uh, starved to death. And so I was a very fragile, barely surviving little child. And then uh, I had asthma and eczema, and my, my parents were pretty harsh people. And I grew up a little bit like an uptight kid, very cerebral, but like that. Um, and so, of course, then you start studying this because all research is research at the end. So you always <laughs> put things out of yourself. You don't know that, but you do. Uh, and then one of the first things that's extraordinarily helpful for me was getting involved. And uh, it's an old German thing. Huh? Um, yeah. uh, and involving is actually a very harsh procedure, actually. Like uh, somebody really opens up your muscles and body work and uh and for me it's incredibly helpful just this i always had this sort of little bit of a frozen body and after i got off i could have my body mm-hmm. i could stand straight and my breathing became deeper and my heart rate variability changed and they became a calmer person because i was no living no longer living in an uptight body mm-hmm. And so it's interesting with all the psychoanalysis and talking and talk therapy, um, which was all completely useless, but at the end, to my mind, having a body that actually felt open to new experience was, uh, was the most helpful thing. Uh, and then uh, another really very significant time was for me when I was, uh, I was an advisor to the Truth, Truth Commission in South Africa. I don't know how that happened, but... Uh, and I saw Bishop Tutu at work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a horrendously traumatized population. And the, these, and the reason why the Truth Commission came into existence is because 
Mandela and Tutu and the other people who came to power realized that if we don't do something to help people with their trauma, there will be a massive bloodbath and South Africa will be right. conceived in slaughter like India was. And in India, you see the long-term effects many years later. And they had this deliberate process, which they called the truth and reconciliation process. But in fact, it was a process to keep the black people from killing white people. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, nobody said that. <laughs> but that's what, what they were doing. And how did to do, do it? is that he had these town hall meetings and he went from town, township to township and he had people talk about what happened and he would listen and they would sing together and they would dance together and they would move together and there was not a dry eye in the house because it was so moving because they were so amazing in terms of helping people to speak their truth and for people to be seen but most of all for people to feel a sense of pleasure harmony and joy by moving together and singing together Mm -hmm. and all around the world except in america and europe do people sing and move and dance in response to trauma Mm -hmm. so we establish a sense of synchrony harmony and that's really where part of our core part of our brain that's what little babies learn is to be in sync and harmony with Mm -hmm. the people who take care of them and that needs to be reinstated Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what I what I hear is music, dancing, body work, like everything that helps us to to start sensing and feeling and enjoying our body again. Right, and, and, and of course, being still, yeah. really allowing yourself to realize all that stuff that's happening inside of you. When you turn off all the things and you sit. I feel restless. I want to look at my iPhone. They go, no, just take a breath. Notice what happens, how uptight you are. Notice what happens in your body. And then you need to know that what happens if you take a breath. Mm. What happens if you put your shoulders back? Mm. What happens if you straighten your spine? What happens if you just notice what happens when you pay attention to yourself? And I think that's terribly important. Huh? Learning to safely pay attention to yourself and to start looking after yourself as a creature, uh, your internal creature, mm-hmm. and say, this is a very uptight, scared creature that I'm dealing with. How can I help this creature to feel uh, better? Mm, it's beautiful just listening to you is this kind of a soothing feeling that comes across when you talk about it. It's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's super important. I'm fully with you, and I, 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 I want to underline the importance of what you said right now. I think it's super, super important. And I, I know that there is one tool that you um, also use in your work that's psychodrama, uh-huh. or, or kind of. Maybe you can tell us first what what your. Well, let's go. So, so there's a thing that comes before that, and that is that. I became increasingly aware, and it's becoming larger and larger, is how you get traumatized, you get stuck in certain habits. Right. And the habit is really, I'm done for, I'm screwed, I'm helpless. And so you become a helpless creature, and you live in a helpless body, or you live in an angry body, and you see the world in a particular way. And um, being traumatized means you become very inflexible. You see the world 
in your way, and that's the only way. So you get narrower and narrower. And the first person who I know who really said that very well is Pierre Genet back in the 1880s, who said, talked about the narrowing of consciousness. Huh? Mm-hmm. And so you get more and more focused on those people out there and how killing these people out there and I'm in danger and I'm screwed, blah, blah, blah. And so you get in this habit of, <coughs> of not seeing other perspectives of being narrow-minded, narrow-body, etc., etc. So the question is, how do you open up new possibilities? Right. And, and so singing, dancing, and moving is one way of doing it. Uh, and then I've been seeing in the book also that I, one of my kids was a very um, oddly wired kid and who more and more became, had an identity of I'm weird, etc. And he got involved in theater. And my frozen son gets to play Rocket in the West Side Story and he sings, Dear Officer Krupke, we're down on our knees. And suddenly I see my son sort of developing a new body, a new identity. And yeah. his next role is he is the Fonz in Happy Days. He sings and moves and dance. And I see my son evolve into another creature because he was playing in a play that allowed him to experience his body different from his identity that he experienced. So I got very intrigued with how do people develop new identities by have, living in a body that has new identity. And so uh, we set a program called Trauma Drama, and uh, my wife and I took uh, advanced Shakespeare in acting courses, and you got to really see what it feels like to be somebody else, uh, to be a frozen person and then play Lady Macbeth and who has despised her husband for not being willing to king, kill his king. And she says, if he had not so resembled my father, I would have done the deed myself. <laughs> and to embody this evil queen, you go like, oh, that's what it feels like to be a powerful evil person. How interesting. And the next play, next play, you play something else. You say, oh, no, I'm somebody else. Oh, that's what it feels like to be like that. And so to somatically experience a variety of different possibilities is extremely powerful. And again, throughout the history of the world, people have used theater in order to deal with trauma. Greek yeah. uh, plays still, you know, they got it. 325 BC, they just nailed it everything and in their place and you see all the tragedies of human beings being played out and even watching it that low playing the roles yourself you get to really feel oh that's what it's like oh that's what these people go through and it's a somatic experience mm-hmm. and so i think theater is extreme and actually i i i was in some school plays as a kid also myself and i remember that as being a very profound experience of playing a role that is different from the role that I was getting more and more locked into. All of us are playing our roles. And so I think theater is very, very uh, useful. And then uh, the psychodrama is even more interesting and complete. I studied with a guy by the name of El Peso, Albert Peso, uh, who unfortunately called his method after himself, which I think is always a bad idea. Um, and, but he was a former dancer. And he, he showed me how if you put things into space, 
you get a very different consciousness. And, you know, I do these workshops all the time. We're doing on next week again. And every time we do it, I'm, I'm blown away that if I say to you, if you sit in a group and I say to you, well, would you like to have somebody role play your dad? And you choose somebody and say, where would you like to put him? You put your dad somewhere over there and you know exactly where he goes. No, no, not there, there. And then when that person stands there as a placeholder for your dad, all the feelings that you have towards your dad come alive. Right, right. That process blows my mind. Mm -hmm. And that's the process of putting things in three-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. Because we are these yaki people, and yaki is very much left brain. Uh -huh. The right brain, which is really where the trauma is, sits, is a non-linear, non-sequential, non-time-bound, uh, spatial brain. Uh -huh. So you put your life out in space. Remarkable things happen. I mean, I'm just still just blown away by it because it's, it's not sort of in our culture and our thinking. And that if you, if you put your life out there in three-dimensional space, you have a very deep experience of where you have been, what you go through, and so you really have very deep feelings about the organization of your life and how the internal world can be portrayed out there. It's a very emotional experience. And then you are so psychologically open, you can start inserting new possibilities. Mm -hmm. And so as you confront your dad and say, Dad, you always, you never approved of me and you always were so harsh, but then I found that you had an affair with somebody else. You were a hypocrite about things and blah, blah, and all these feelings come up, mm -hmm. which is very different from telling somebody else about it because there he is and you're really confronting the reality of your life. And then what you introduce is an ideal father who, if I'd be your dad, I would have read you bedtime stories. If I'd be your dad, I would have celebrated the fact that you wanted to be an artist and not a biochemist, and I would have supported you. And that that person holds you in a way that you didn't know you could be held, and then an imprint comes into your body of, oh my God, that is what it would have felt like if somebody who would have helped me like, back, like that back then, and it becomes a new imprint, becomes a new reality in your sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And from that time on, you know on a very deep visceral level of what it feels like to be a loved child mm -hmm. or to be affirmed, not to be ignored or neglected or be the idea of somebody else. And you get a very deep visceral experience of, oh, that's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. and it brings about a very, very profound change, actually. Fantastic, fantastic! So lovely to listen to you. It's beautiful. Yeah, no, I can I can feel also your your work while you are speaking, and mm -hmm. and also I, I I what I also hear and and please tell me if that's correct is also that there's a deep relationality in the work of reprogramming this because mm -hmm. uh, like I see as one of the trauma symptoms that people want to do it themselves alone. <laughs> well, and, see, the other pieces. Therapists like to do it for their patients. Right. But I cannot give you the experience by being nice to you of what it would have felt like if your dad had done that and that with you when you were three years old. Had wrong time, wrong person, wrong place. 
So how do you get it? Insert that feeling in somebody. Right. And this is almost like a surgical implant. Like, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, right. That's beautiful. So, and also the importance of that relation that that's needed in order to do the healing because there are, there are often these self-help books. Yeah. How do you heal self? And I think also you're speaking to how do we heal together? How well, do we it's very collective. And, and I think, you know, that's how encounter groups used to be in the 60s. And, you know, there's all stuff that has all disappeared. Why it has disappeared, God knows. So it's coming back suddenly 40 years later. Mm-hmm. Why, that, why the culture goes like that, I don't know. Uh, but it's always a collective experience. And so when you do the psychodrama groups, uh, people do things together, they dance together, they move together, sing together, uh, do, do theater work, basically, theater exercises, and then they feel collectively engaged with each other, and then they become very generous. Mm-hmm. And so everybody is focused on, yeah, let's give you that experience that you really need. Mm-hmm. As the whole energy of the room is focused on on making things happen to to heal that person. Yeah. Beautiful. So you also see in your work that the power of the we is a deep healing resource. It's not oh, just yeah. it's a we space that weaves in a way a resource for the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Very much yeah. So. yeah. And so um, I have I have two two more questions that I'm interested in. One is is a little bit um, like returning to the disembodiment. So when you look at society today, um, what would you say are, are collective symptoms of our level of disembodiment? And I'm also asking this in the light of climate change, for example. Do you see a relation between many of us not being fully embodied, let's call it that way, um, and and the lack of regulation or care or feedback regulation of human beings within the ecosystem. So that, that the physical aspect of me, that, that as you said, you are looking out your window and you see right. mountains and forests, right. nature, it gives you a visceral feeling and that feeling gives you an impulse of care and love and compassion and connection. So yeah. is there like, how is disembodiment and maybe epidemic disembodiment uh, connected might this be connected to the way we are facing climate crisis or the way we respond to the climate crisis or not respond to the climate crisis quickly enough you know I, you know again i'm not sociologist so I, I don't automatically think in those terms but i think it's it's indeed uh, the dissociation cutting yourself off uh, not appreciating um, appreciating the sensory experience that you live in. And if you're a sensate human being, you get very grateful for, uh, for what the earth has to give to you. And you, you get compassion for yourself, but you also get compassion for what's around you. And, uh, and you know that you're, you're being fed by Mother Earth and that you're a guest on this earth who is allowed to be here. And if you get a sense of gratitude inside of yourself because you have good experience inside of yourself, I think you expand to that and say, no, I'm not going to drive, use a lot of gas and and not going to contribute to climate change. And I think that's really, has to to do with embodiment and knowing how fragile everything is, including how fragile you are, Uh how, how 
how much care you need in order to function well. And that, that will expand itself to the people around you and to the earth around you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. So they said another lovely sentence like that you're a guest on this earth. Yeah. Like that's a, but that's a, a realization like for like it's a it's a beautiful realization and f to contemplate on mm -hmm. i think and when you live in a city you don't really say i'm a guest in this you know it's <laughs> apartment building you know? <laughs> right, right. but when i walk through anyway <laughs> lane's here gonna thank you for allowing me to be here and there's a bear over there and that bear is allowed to be here too <laughs> Right, it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful realization that we are a guest here, and that a certain sense of entitlement turns into humility. I mean, that's a beautiful. I think it's a beautiful realization. Yeah. And and then and then um, maybe to transition to the other part that I know you're somehow also researching or at least looking at is the um, how how does like MDMA assisted trauma work work do you think it's something that's growing that has a meaning if it has a meaning what's what is your experience well, it fits in with everything you're talking about huh? that when you're traumatized you get stuck in this world of fear and terror and anger uh, and lack of self-love and you despise yourself for feeling as angry and weak and scared as you are and uh, and then, so this is movement has sort of slowly happened of, of mindfulness and how you cannot have a mind if you don't become mindful. And then it turns out that for traumatized people, becoming mindful is extraordinarily difficult. And then Tanya Singer in Germany does this very, very wonderful research that shows that mindfulness only works if it's accompanied by self-compassion. Mm -hmm and a deep sort of love for what you find inside of yourself. But when you're a traumatized person and you go inside of yourself, what you find is pain and hurt and anger and deprivation and shame and embarrassment. And there's no self, no self compassion. It's not very much, very much a hallmark of being traumatized. And so how do we help this self compassion? It's not the you know, MDMA is not the only way of getting there. I think that a very good hypnotic experience or a good psychodrama experience or some very deep experience where you really go into that can do you probably the same thing. You don't know yet at this point. But you know what MDMA is about, and that's why people have been taking MDMA, it is a love drug. And it gives you a sense of of loving whatever comes up. Mm -hmm. And uh, same thing seems to happen with ayahuasca to some degree. So something changes in the chemistry of your brain where you can sort of observe yourself and say, and actually it can be quite a painful experience to actually go inside, but you can tolerate things better than, uh, than you could before. And you may come into the scene of having been abused, having been beaten, and you go like, oh, that poor kid who was me that nobody had the right to do this to this kid. This really was a precious kid. And so this issue of um, chemically enhancing that sense of self-compassion and loving yourself uh, can be a very good help on the way to, uh, to developing a sense of uh, that a kid didn't deserve it and also a sense of this happened to this kid, but it happened a long time ago. And today I'm in beautiful surroundings and I survived it. 
And so to get a sense of perspective so that you don't get, you get less of a chance to get, be locked in that habit of seeing yourself as a victim and the world as being a dangerous, terrible place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I'm worried about is our culture is so much into pills and easy solutions that people say, oh, just take this MDMA and it will go away. And that's very much not what our study is about and what the practice is about. It's very much, uh, you know, the study is interesting because we prepare people for a long time and you have a whole day session of either placebo or MDMA in which there's two people who work with you in detail and then you go through a lot. But what I'm impressed with is the placebo group also gets a lot because very few people in our world get eight hours of complete attention right. and the placebo condition is very powerful as well uh-huh. just have that very deep experience of loving people being around you for eight hours oh yeah right and yeah. but you see in the research you see a, a, an increase of effectivity with the mdma well so we're still collecting data ah, okay that's okay. part of being a scientist is that You don't know what the data are until you analyze them. And so you hope for the best. But in, so in the previous studies, there were two previous studies, indeed the, um, the MDMA group did better than the placebo group. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that will happen this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interesting. It's very, very likely, but um, I think just having the experience of being seen for eight hours and deeply going to yourself always has a very profound effect also. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. All right. And so um, maybe one more question that came up while you talked about MDMA was um, how do you see, like you talked a little bit before about becoming still, you talk now about mindfulness, yeah. we talk about presence, and we talk also about presence in the sense of a spiritual connection, a connection to meaning, a connection yeah. to being part of something bigger. Like how do you see like the spiritual dimension of a human being as a resource for trauma healing? And, and what's your experience with this? It's a tricky one because I think mm-hmm. trauma really leaves you in a God-forsaken state. You know, uh, when you're being traumatized, the sense that God is there for you or that you're part of a meaning, the full system, really goes. And that whole meaning system gets blown away. Mm-hmm. And so... The way I see it is that once you begin to reestablish that connection with yourself, then your spiritual world starts coming alive again. Right. But I don't think you can impose that spiritual world with somebody, except you know, people may become religious fanatics, and people oftentimes do. Actually, Simon Winchester wrote a book about it, uh, that if a disaster happens, people are likely to convert to fundamentalist religions because it gives them certainty and clarity and no complexity and that somebody out there is doing things for you. But of course, that's the opposite of real spirituality where you feel the connection with the living universe. And I think the spirituality emerges from good treatments and not the other way about. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, we see this also in our groups that there is something also through the healing process, also the spiritual worlds open up more. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that's beautiful. Also, the combination of wisdom traditions and trauma work and, and deep a deep understanding of both together is very powerful. Well, you know, of course, those traditions all come from trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, 
we are a very traumatized species. And I see, you know, the meditative traditions, the Qigong, Tai Chi, the martial arts traditions, I think they all are originally trauma treatments. And they emerge out of desperate people, very traumatized, who has in, to create something that reestablishes a sense of agency and power in some themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One question I have, is there, is there anything, if now listeners like an inspired mm. conversation, do you have something that, like a nugget, or something that we can take into our day as a practice, something that you find is, is maybe easier to do and still has an effect so that people, that we can really implement it in our life? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the, the starting point is to sit on your butt and to see what it's like to not look at the screen, to not look at your iPhone, not to check what's going on, not to listen to outside sounds, and to just spend a little time just listening to the sound of your body and the feelings in your body. And notice your breath, and notice your chest, and notice your spine, and notice if your spine is bent over or if you're open. And experiment a little bit with just feeling your feet and feeling your knees and feeling the way you're but sits on a chair and just spend about five or ten minutes just noticing yourself. It's a miraculous thing. Hmm. You rarely do it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. When you, when you just uh, uh, say it and then you follow it, it's beautiful. It's, yeah. beautiful. it's easy to do, uh, barely easy to do. <laughs> it is very easy to do, but you need to do it. And our frantic nature will say, oh, that's boring. <laughs> right. Our job is to discover how unboring it is to actually notice this creature who you are. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And how, yeah. Magnificent. Right. And um, do you see, because you mentioned screens, so how do you see trauma and... Uh, and technology, there's a huge technological, let's say, let's call it explosion. And, and in my understanding, like technology can be a blessing, but for, for the disembodied part of me, technology can be anything else but a blessing. Like, I really enjoy talking with you, and you know, it's, it's interesting, and you have a particular point of view, a particular energy, and that's interesting. But the poor people go to listen to this webcast, I go to sit passively, and they don't play a role in our dialogue. Right. And so fundamentally, I think, turn off your goddamn screen. <laughs> don't listen to us. <laughs> because you need to interact, and you need to be an agent in this interaction. And right. so don't spend your time with a bunch of people talking to you, uh, because our brain is meant to be interactive. And that's really the great worry about kids growing up on screens, is that kids are naturally interactive, but if you get a virtual interaction with something that you don't affect, mm -hmm. you don't get a brain that has a feeling that I make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so it's very paradoxical that, uh, that we do these wonderful webcasts. <laughs> right. I think you screw people up. <laughs> yeah, right. So you should have mentioned that at the beginning. <laughs> right. And and if you say that with uh, with our kids, is there anything that you recommend to parents given 
like it's it's a challenge for every parent to find the right amount of exposing your kids yeah. to technology and and having them grow up in a contemporary world but at the same time finding a good regulation so yeah. how how is that for you i actually marvel at the young parents who are in my life my intimate life uh, they all don't do screens with their kids mm. uh, they don't let screens take the place of babysitters Mm. They actually spend a lot of time with their kids, and you know it's a tiny fraction of a sample. But boy, do I love the way that my kids and, and other young people I know are, are raising the kids because they really pay attention to them, and they actually, uh, in many ways, pay more attention to their kids than we did because they think they know about the danger of screens somehow. Mm -hmm. But I, I think they're a very small minority, probably. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah most probably. Yeah, so that's amazing. Oh, wow, what a rich journey. I mean, I would love to talk with you much more. Yeah, we, <laughs> we have this uh, this time here together, and it's it's very rich. I love everything you said. It's it's so yeah. deep, and uh, and I'm happy that you're doing this work and this, yeah. you spent your life, uh, you know, researching trauma yeah. in such a depth. And happy and, you're doing this work too, and I, if the interviews, are, if you interview other people as well, you interview me. I actually go spend some time in front of the screen and listen to your other interviews. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Yeah, and uh, some of your friends or colleagues or, you know, anyway, there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, you're most invited. And I hope that everybody who listens in right now uh, gets something inspirational out of this. And it's, it's beautiful. And I also love your transmission. So when you speak and also when you guide your short Guidances, it's to feel I, I can participate in it well. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was Thank great. You very much. You were very inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.